This is Tracy Shabala. I'm a writer for The Fix, and you're listening to Rebellion Dog Radio. Well, well, welcome back to Rebellion Dogs Radio, a 21st century look at 12-step life. Now, with less dogma and more bite. This is episode 37. Our guest today is writer-journalist Tracy Shabala. She's a technology, food, and addiction mental health writer. She's now working on an upcoming novel. We'll hear a little bit about that. We'll talk about the craft of writing, the writing industry, some of the nuances of uh, the addiction recovery uh, media. Uh, She's a fix writer, and she just wrote uh, a piece about a study. Sarah Zemore was the uh, lead investigator in this longitudinal study of the comparative efficacy of A, women for sobriety, B, life ring, C, smart recovery. That's all against uh, D, 12-step groups for those with uh, alcohol and other drug dependency. Much of the resistance of AA or 12-step modality from people in recovery is the real or perceived uh, religious overtones of AA meetings. Uh, because of that frustration, it was important to test how non-religious, uh, more secular uh, fellowships or peer-to-peer or mutual aid societies worked against uh, the AA base. So, we'll find out today who's come up with a better modality to conquer alcohol and other drug disorders. Or does AA have something that yields better results uh, compared to these new options? These questions will be answered. I'll talk with uh, Tracy uh, for the bulk of our time together today. Uh, First, here's some data on recent activities. It is April 2018 at the time of recording uh, this Rebellion Dogs radio show. Here's some of the things that I've been posting about on social media. A bunch of AA road warriors uh, came together in Sedona, Arizona. These are people who, in one way or another, uh, sort of carry the message. Some of them are circuit speakers. Some of them are current or past uh, trustees, delegates, GSO staff, uh, people involved in the AA uh, general service structure, uh, AA historians, researchers. Anyway, uh, the Length of sobriety ranged from 11 years to 50 years. There were uh, AA members from all across America, from Iceland, Denmark, and Canada. Discussion points included AA's changing culture, the questions about our literature being up to the task to future newcomers, what could be altered or improved, spirituality and social media, These were some of the things that were uh, discussed. We looked at how ideas outside of AA could be borrowed from. We had a member talk about the Indigenous Council of Elders that uh, sort of guide Native Indian Americans in, uh, in some cases. And we talked about how companies like Kodak, the best film company in the world, failed. It wasn't because millennials uh, don't want to Uh, preserve and share memories. Maybe it had more to do with Kodak forgetting exactly what business they were in. Was Kodak in the film business 
or was it in the memory preserving and sharing business? I came away with the idea that AA stewardship can learn from the uh, Native American view. We don't inherit our world from our ancestors. We borrow it from our children. Yeah, taking away the idea that AA needs protecting, whether you are from the Preserve the Integrity of the Message camp or the Widening the Gateway camp. Well, parents, you know, it's not one or the other. A parent's job is to protect and to prepare their children. Usually, most of us who have been parents are better at one of those things than we are at the other. Some of that makes sense when it comes to AA stewardship or the 12-step community as a whole. So we looked ahead to 2016, AA's 100th birthday, and asked, you know, is this fellowship as it stands today what's going to be needed then? We're not driving the same cars we drove in 1936 or 39 or 49 or 1960, but we still need cars, some of us. Are the customs in our meetings to comfort the existing members or the still suffering. Some feel that newcomers are the ones that need to change. We don't adapt to them, they adapt to us. That's what recovery is. Others feel that more can be done to make AA a more welcoming refuge from alcoholism. I've often commented before that the demographics of a lot of AA meetings look quite different than when you walk out on the street. The community outside the meeting looks a little different than the community inside the meeting. Uh, what that says, I'll leave to you. I was also on an outreach trip for uh, ICSA 2018 in Toronto, August 24th to 26th. That's the International Conference of Secular AA, formerly known as We Agnostics, Atheists, and Free Thinkers AA Convention. Our first uh, biennial was in Santa Monica in 2014. Some of those assembled in Sedona last weekend were at that uh, first ever event. Austin hosted our 2016 get-together, and now we're on to Toronto. Registration is $125 Canadian. That's about 98 bucks US or 98 euros. It's 70 British pounds today and about... Uh, 127 Aussie dollars. It includes meetings, uh, at least one lunch on Saturday, uh, breakfast on Sunday, a couple of coffee and refreshment breaks. Uh, we're not looking to make a profit, so any extra money we get from registration we'll put right back into uh, feeding and refreshing the attendees. Prior to uh, the USA Southwest outreach leg, uh, the host committee for uh, the Toronto Convention. We were at the Ontario Regional Conference in Toronto, and we were in Kingston, Ontario, for the Area 83 Eastern Ontario International Assembly in Kingston. We were also in North Bay's We Agnostics group. That's about 150 miles north of Toronto. Later this month, it's Alberta, with meeting stops in St. Albert, uh, near Edmonton and uh, Calgary, Alberta. So if you're listening, hope to see, and you're from Alberta, hope to see you there. Now, with uh, no uh, further ado, uh, let's get on with our guest. From Los Angeles, California, here's Tracy. 
Uh, Tracy, I've been a, a big uh, fan of yours for uh, quite some time because the whole addiction recovery blogosphere, there's a bit of lunatic fringe there in terms of, uh, you know, the uh, zealots and the fault finders and all that sort of thing. And uh, I, I find you to be a, uh, a sober voice in the addiction recovery uh, profession. Wow, I'm so glad, actually, because I think those voices are really necessary, you know? I think that, um, as with a lot of things, the minority is the loudest a lot. It's the, it's the loud, you know, the majority is usually a little bit more measured in their views. <laughs> so I think it's important to speak out. Yeah, that's an important uh, part of it, too, isn't it? The loudest voices aren't the only views being expressed. They're just the most zealous. <laughs> mm-hmm. And most persistent. And they won't let go. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, the, the urgent thing I wanted to talk you about. I, I hope we can talk a little bit about your own sort of recovery journey, a little bit about getting into writing in the first place. But you uh, wrote about a study I was following a little bit that appeared in the Journal of Substance Abuse uh, Treatment. And uh, just as an aside, I, I see they haven't changed the name of their journal, although substance abuse uh, isn't used much these days anymore because uh, it, it makes the victim, the abuser, and the substance, the victim. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> that'll be a subject for another day. Um, and they were uh, covering uh, peer alternatives and addiction. In other words, you know, a lot of treatment centers use uh, 12-step modality uh, by just you know, long-term practice. It's its ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Uh, but they wanted to see how that compared to Women for Recovery, Smart Recovery, and Life Ring, right? Yes, that's correct. Can, can you tell me, about, did you actually get to interview, uh, like, the lead investigator, or did you just read the uh, report? How did you come across it? I did interview the lead um, investigator on the study, and right now the name, her name um, escapes me, but she, um, it was, she felt it was really urgent to explore these alternatives because there are so many people who are turned off by AA, mainly because of the quasi-religious element of it. Some, you know, a lot of AA members will call it spiritual, but it is, you know, there's God in, in the literature all over the place. So she, she, you know, she had interacted with so many people who needed recovery and just didn't want to go. So she's like, we need to see how effective these alternatives are. And it was the first longitudinal study. Granted, longitudinal studies can take place over 30 years or, or one year, and this one was just one year. But I still think it, it speaks volumes to, to how these other programs work and she didn't find a difference in the efficacy there was a little bit of a snag that got kind of confusing like when I first looked at the study because the abstinence goals in smart recovery and in I believe women was it women for sobriety I think, I think women for recovery. sobriety you can choose your goals yes their goals you know the, the, Abstinence, is, it's not that it's not stressed in those programs, because it certainly is, and I've, I've been to Smart Recovery, but, but within AA, it's like do or die, and so, yeah, there's more 
sort of pressure, I guess, in a way. And so the abstinence goals were different among participants in Smart Recovery and um, Women for Sobriety. So there was a little bit less abstinence there. But when you controlled for that, they had the, the results were the same across the board. So uh, when you say control for that, what you mean is they just take the people in uh, Life Ring, Smart Recovery, Women for Recovery who have chosen abstinence for their goal and compare that against the 12-step model? Is that what you mean by control? Yes, exactly. Okay, okay. So you're comparing uh, people trying to stop uh, against people trying to stop. Right. And, uh, and, the, and yeah, so there's a couple of interesting things there, isn't there? That first, nobody's invented a better buggy whip, uh, but, uh, you know, people have choices available to them. It's not, oh, this tried and true evidence-based method against who knows what. We now have evidence that suggests it's the intention. Uh, it's the submitting to some sort of modality, not necessarily the individual steps that are taken. Is is that what you gleaned from the study? Yeah, you know, that's a very good point because, like, you know, my, my first uh, takeaway was, like, they're all equally effective, but, like, what you just said is how that intention is so important. And I think that's really interesting because spontaneous remission is another thing that happens. And yes. I've met people and they're just like, you know what, I was done and I knew it was gonna kill me, so I stopped and they never went to a program or a rehab in their life. And so, yes, the intention is very important, for sure. Uh, did you ask her uh, why she didn't include some of the more, now I'll get uh, emails for this, but, because uh, I'm going to say some of the more spiritual uh, slash religious approaches like uh, refuge recovery. And I know some people don't think Buddhism is a religion. And I understand that argument that it's a philosophy, not a religion. Uh, and then there's um, what's the Christian one? I think it's Alcoholics Victorious. Uh, oh, right. Yeah, she didn't include uh, any of those in there. Um, is there a particular reason why she chose uh, secular vein approaches versus AA? Because she found a lot of people's main objection was the religious aspect? You know, she didn't say explicitly that that's why she excluded those two groups. I know that as a study, they they did have a difficult time getting funding, so I think they had to kind of keep it, those programs to a minimum just mm-hmm. to keep it sort of simple, especially say in AA. But um, <laughs> she did mention that she wished she could have included refuge recovery. And oh, then, okay. like, going, moving forward, she'd like to do studies on that as well. Nice. Yeah, I, I would like to, too. And, and I think, I mean, to me it was, uh, you know, my own anecdotal evidence. And I'll tell you the... The internet has really broadened my viewpoints because I meet more people who don't go to meetings and have a great recovery program and social anxiety disorder takes people out of the just go to a meeting mix, but they find other ways to recover. I know people in refuge and I'm, I'm sure that works just as well as a 12-step model, but I don't know that for a fact. That's why I love it to be studied. Well, it's funny because I definitely have spent time in refuge recovery and at Against the Stream, and 
Um, there's a few echoes to the AA philosophy, but then in, in other ways it's totally different. And I think it's wonderful, you know, it's based on mindfulness meditation and compassion meditation. Um, I feel like the energy there is so less frenetic as opposed to many AA meetings. And the flip side is that a lot of AA meetings are complete hoot, like not in a, in a bad way, in, in like they're... They're spirited and funny and lively and warm, and that's great, too. Um, but I, I really do appreciate the philosophy of refuge recovery. I feel like it's far less judgmental toward the person who, you know, has struggled with substance misuse in, in a big way. And then, yeah, you can apply that to other aspects of your life. Um, it, just, it just facilitates a, a state of calm, which yeah. is good. Yeah. <laughs> People who uh, are, you know, comparing AA to something or either criticizing or uh, defending or apologizing for AA, uh, they, they all try to treat it like all meetings are like walking into a McDonald's. You'll get the same experience everywhere you go. But, but like you uh, eloquently said, you know, you know, the meetings are as individual as the members that attend them. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, being over here in Los Angeles, I mean, I, I'm sure we get a much more liberal uh, perspective on it. And, and, and we do have like more hardcore fundamentalists, but so many are agnostics or atheists or open to attending other meetings. Like I still have so many close friends who are in the program and they didn't really bat an eye when I left. They were like, well, you, you know, as long as you you know, stay safe and you try other things, like, that's the most important thing. So that's, you know, that's a big deal. I, I, I've heard that in other parts of the country, maybe smaller towns, you know, of course, it's going to be more limited in your meeting selection, and so the views are going to be less diverse. And the AA's been around so long, there's some mythology, and there was a lack of study, so uh, a lot of people whose uh, reading life is a uh, 164-page limit you know, they wouldn't be aware of some of these other studies. And th there are some people who come and get what they need in AA and leave. Academics call them uh, graduates or tourists. You know, they you know might do 90 meetings in 90 days. They may stay around for their first year medallion. I'll, I'll use air quotes here. The miracle happens and uh, they... Uh, Getting on with their life uh, doesn't include going to meetings at 8 o'clock every evening or even once a week. And uh, they're, they're probably better examples for what AA can do for someone than the uh, lifers uh, that uh, continue going. I mean, I continue going, but I, I've ha had so many friends in recovery that just, you know, go on and do other things. And they don't seem any more at risk of relapse than anybody else I know. Right, and I think that's a really good point because I've contemplated that about myself, too, because I was kind of a disaster, well, for sure a disaster when I first got sober, and I do think AA helped me. I think that, you know, for those of us who do want to move on, it's, it's a lot, you know, not all AA members for sure, but some will especially point out to that the, the service component, like AA gave you this wonderful gift and you're not going to pass that on and share it with the rest of the world, and you know, AA is so big. There's so many members that I, I really feel like there's plenty of people to pass that on. And I think that we absolutely can be of service in different ways. And that's the key thing. I, I think being of service 
is a wonderful thing for uh, anybody, you uh, know, giving back, of course. I think the people that read what you write, that's a, a form of, uh, air quotes again, 12-step work. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I would find it hard to believe that if you joined a uh, rock climbing uh, group and someone said they thought maybe they had a problem with uh, addiction that you would stay quiet about it. <laughs> That's a good point. It's true. Uh, You're absolutely right. I mean, we're more likely to find people uh, looking for help uh, with addiction uh, somewhere other than an AA meeting, right? <laughs> I mean, often you're yes. preaching to the choir just going to a meeting every day. <laughs> no, it's totally true. And it's definitely like me being a writer, and then I do storytelling, I meet comedians. I mean, writers, comedians, we're a, you know, troubled lot in a lot of ways. So there's a lot of people who I call it substance misuse. Yeah. issues and and like like you say and and given there's so many people i know who like don't want to go to aa so when i say oh well you know i don't I, i've tried this that and the other then it, it's even more appealing for them to make a change because they're like oh i don't have to necessarily do the 12 step yeah thing. it's it's not all or nothing the other thing i would love to know is how many people inside like the two million aa members how many of them have or intend to work uh, all 12 steps in order as described in the literature because nobody checks our homework, right? Uh, you know, it could be only one out of three AA members uh, literally apply the steps in their life and two out of three either dismiss them and, and stay sober on the fellowship or work them in an informal uh, way. Uh, that would be a, an interesting study too. That really would be... It really would be, and I, I, I wish that more researchers could do that kind of thing. I know it takes funding, um, and I know there's, you know, there's still issues with anonymity, but there, I mean, obviously that's not too big of a hurdle because this study that just came out, they, they studied AA members, so mm-hmm. it would be really good, really great to see that. Um, Which came first? Were you a a writer and then a member of the recovery community, or did you become a writer in the recovery community? Well, the writing has been with me for a long time, I have to say. Um, I kind of knew I was a writer from the time I would probably eat. I think that's when I sat down to write my first book. So I studied uh, creative writing in college, and I also got a master's in it, which... I kind of question whether that was the best route because you don't have to study writing to be a writer, but I've done it for a very long time. Yeah, I was uh, I was listening to, uh, I don't know if you've ever listened to the Unruffled podcast, but uh, they were, were talking about writing, the craft of writing, and how you can get into this idea that if you you know study enough about the craft of writing, you won't make any more mistakes and you'll find the secret. <laughs> Right. It's interesting. I mean, I just the other day was looking at Imperfect Past. Mm-hmm. I, was lo- I was looking at Imperfect Past tense, you know, going, wait a second, I've got this all wrong. <laughs> I have a master's in, in writing, and I'm like, do I know this? Am I using the right form for drunk or drink? And so you're always learning, that's for sure, and it certainly takes constant humility to to work on that craft. It's very important to, and I, I don't mean to go on a tangent, but I do see there's amazing writing out there, and there's also a lot of, not garbage, but, but stuff where people, I, I don't know that they do respect that craft and want to really, you know, 
just sculpt with words. So that, that's my own thing. But yeah, well, sure. <laughs> not, not everyone's E.E. E. Cummings just because they don't follow the rules. <laughs> that's true, too. That's true. You're right about that. Hubert Selby Jr. is also yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, yeah I always uh, I I found uh, the rules very discouraging in that English class was really more about the mechanics and, and you do have to learn the craft before you can paint abstractly if it, if you're learning fine art and same with writing but uh, my inability to spell and learn what the exceptions to the rules were which seemed as many as there were. Uh, you know, rules that followed the rules. It, it, it uh, I preferred drugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't blame you. <laughs> yeah, I'm not blaming my path on English teachers. <laughs> but it was so frustrating, funny. right? I mean, there's a big difference between the craft of writing and uh, the creativity. Everyone's got their own voice, and, and you can't teach that. No, you're absolutely right. And and I do find, like, with writing, it's so interesting because you do need to tap into that spontaneous creativity that I think kind of comes from your subconscious. And at the same time, you have to be very cerebral and, you know, be the critic and use your logic. And so it's this mix of skills that you're learning that, you know, because I also dance and I've done fine art. And, like, those are a lot different. You still need to... To hone and of course to have that that editor within yourself but writing is another beast so usually the first draft is when I just let go and then from there you go back with all of your logic really and, mm-hmm. and start editing the crap out of whatever you've written uh, and and some people are better at uh, being edited uh, than others are and and I don't think I was naturally good at it, but I learned it in the music business. That if if you're looking for praise, that's not going to help you as an artist. Uh, but if you can take a song to somebody and say, no, honestly, tell me why this isn't played on radio today. And with all of their knowledge and experience, they can tell you, uh, you know, how it could be altered or improved. Uh, you know, that just, you know, makes you learn your craft a lot better than having all of your friends and family say that's better than Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> you are, it's so true. It's so true. I mean, I've worked with amazing editors. I mean, and like, and like with that educational background, and I don't throw that out. I mean, I hope I'm not throwing out there to sound mm-hmm. like, you know, braggart or something, but it's like, it, it's almost like it doesn't even matter. I, I, it's like every day I have to be like, I am starting over, you know, mm-hmm. screw all that. And I've worked, I've written some personal essays, uh, specifically one at uh, Salon, for Salon and also Vice, where these editors, you know, they just chiseled away at it and they made my stuff so much better because they had me dig a lot deeper and slow down and it was surfacey. And so I, I absolutely agree with you, you know, it, it only makes us better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but some people just can't handle it. They, they feel they're having their wings clipped and they're not understood, and, and they can't listen to it. And it's a shame, because... Uh, right. and, and maybe some people, I mean, for blogging or whatever, use your own voice, right? But, yeah, right. It, uh, the editors understand the audience you're writing to better than you do, so they can really help, uh, you know, take your, you know, sort of creativity and funnel it in a, in a sort of uh, narrative 
that their audience is going to be uh, receptive to. So it's it's not trimming your wings. It's you know improving your chances at making an impact. It's absolutely true. I, it is. I think ideally we shouldn't we shouldn't like critique somebody with kid gloves, you know. But it does help when there is some constructive aspect to it. Because I have like when I was in school, there were, and there were always these guys who like rode skateboards, but they we did you know writing workshops, and they would just slam my stuff, but in a really I don't know, disdainful manner mm -hmm, where they mm -hmm. were almost mocking my intelligence. And that didn't help. You know, that just pissed me off. And, and, and yeah, so I, I think, you know, have, having some graciousness when you're, when you're constructive. But for the most part, 99% of people who give you feedback, the criticism are, are very constructive. You usually mm -hmm. have your best interest in mind. So. It seems that there is as much chaos in the, the, the sort of genre of addiction recovery in terms of the writing outlets that are available there. I consider myself sort of on the outside looking in. I mean, I, I've written for The Fix and for the Pacific Standard and for In Recovery magazine and, you know, a, a bunch of different places. But I don't consider myself part of any sort of community. But, uh, you know, editors change and... You know, uh, and some of the most beautiful looking magazines, the glossies, you know, go out of business or become e-zines. Is that the publishing industry or is that our particular genre, do you think? Oh, that's a great uh, question. And I would say definitely the industry to some degree. Because mm -hmm. um, I've, I've written for other sites and they're down within you know, a couple months mm -hmm. and, you know, definitely people are buying magazines less, people are buying print journalism less. So there's that. The market, I think, is saturated with so many outlets, startups, you know, trying to be a certain thing that it's very difficult right now. It's even difficult to sort of establish your, your voice. I think The Fix is doing great. Mm -hmm. And After Party Magazine, they, they were doing great too. Anna David's awesome and amazing. And then they changed to rehab reviews. Um, so they stopped posting as many stories, but um, like personal essays and news mm -hmm. stories. I think they're still doing some. But yeah, I mean, I was writing about technology for a really great technology culture for a great startup called Smashed. Um, mm. And I absolutely loved it. And they were they were done within like a couple years, and it was a real shame. You know, we got the Dalai Lama, and we got Quincy Jones for interviews, and they were putting yeah. out great stuff, and yet still it it, it crashed and burned in, in the end. Coming from music, it's a environment I'm familiar with, and in in publishing, uh, someone was doing a review of a sort of drug and alcohol memoirs or what, but they were listing the number of uh, titles that uh, are coming out every hour now that there's publishing on demand as well as the traditional publishing routes. And I remember in the music industry when they went from, uh, you know, 27,000 barcodes for CDs uh, a year to, you know, 250,000 barcodes for CDs. And the old industry uh, views that with alarm. I, I was at a book... America Expo. I don't know if I got those words all in the right order uh, <laughs> in New York. And this guy was saying about how there's too many titles. And, and I'm sitting in the audience and saying, I don't hear that from readers, right? I only hear that from people who are losing market share. And uh, I mean, what do you think of all that? The dissemination of uh, the sort of gatekeepers and all that jazz? 
That's a great question, too. I've noticed the saturation. Uh, like, on one hand, as a writer, as a novelist, while well, I'm working on a novel or any kind of book, you know, when there are so many more voices, I think it takes even more to leave an imprint. I have some friends who have recently published uh, novels, and they've done very well, and they've had been very well received by, like, the New York Times have written about them and Vogue and basically all, you know, very respectful publications. I don't know if I'm completely answering your question on Target, but I do know that when you go through a traditional publisher, you usually will have a lot more publicity because mm-hmm. um, they'll spend the money on it, so these, these critics will read your stuff. Um, I have a friend who self-published, and his book did amazing, and then a publisher later approached him. I think I'm a little bit off topic. Um, yeah, no, no, it's all readers, good. <laughs> <laughs> I think that readers are very important, you know, and traditionally the literary community can be, I mean, I kind of, uh, I, <laughs> you know, because I got that master's degree, you kind of, you're surrounded by a certain echelon of people. And, and I love, like, literary novels, those really are my favorite, but uh, I don't want to say snobbery. That's not, that's not quite right, but... Um, I just think it's great that anybody can have a voice. I really do. And at the same time, I think that it's important that the craft of writing be respected. But readers are going to sort through the way they want to. And I think it's great that they can find something they love and and latch onto it and chew into that and enjoy themselves. I mean, the most important thing is that people are still reading. That is the most important thing, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Again, to use a music example, more music is being consumed than ever before. It's just the top 40 doesn't have the relevance it used to have because, you know, 60, 70 percent of music listeners aren't even familiar with the top 40 anymore when it was unavoidable 25 or 30 years ago. Right, right. And and it's so amazing. Like, with me, I mean, it just cracks open all this interesting music we normally wouldn't hear. And mm-hmm. I know most a lot of the, my music that I love, it's like these, these really more obscure bands. Some of them now have, have become, you know, more popular in the mainstream. But, but they've been able to publish themselves or get their stuff on iTunes or, you know, Google Play. And, and then they create this audience. And it's it's wonderful because more interesting, original, maybe even avant-garde stuff is, is, is able to get out there. Mm-hmm. And that's very important, I think. It's yeah. Really great. I would say to someone in music or even someone writing, I mean, there's something from a marketing term called like a vertical marketing. Like if you, if you really know your market, you're better off to be an indie artist or you're better off to be a self-published uh, author because you already know how to find those people. You can do Google ads, you can do Facebook ads, you can blog to that, that audience, uh, and you, you can find them better than Random House could, because you, you know who they are, they know who you are, and you have complete creative control in terms of what you do. And it's the same thing in certain music genres are so specific, uh, you know, a major label, you know, isn't really going to be able to help you find your audience any better than you could yourself. So why give up the extra margin for them to tell your story to people who aren't even listening? That's a very good point, too. It really is. And it and it and it's so important to build a platform, which I'm trying to figure out how I even do that. And I appreciate being on the podcast because that's something I can share. And mm-hmm. like, I do, I do know the importance of that. And you tie that in with like, you're saying self-publishing and you really can go, go far. Um, it's, it's 
so funny because I think about authors like William Burroughs and or Hubert Selwood Jr. or even James Joyce, and I'm like, would these guys be published today? I mean, I know I feel restricted in what I write because I'm like, if I go on a three-page bender that has no punctuation, who's going to publish that? And I do know, like, David Foster Wallace obviously uh, was published and, you know, wrote very, very long paragraphs <laughs> and stuff, but I, I wonder, because people, the publishers do seem to want to make that dollar, you know, of course, why wouldn't they, the businesses, but that's kind of a shame, though, if the artistry is stifled, of course. In a sort of do-it-yourself world, which we're getting more and more into, some of the, the major publisher authors see that that publisher helped me get an audience, but that audience goes directly to my website anyway, and they skip the middleman, They, you know, their next title, they do themselves, and they just publish it through Amazon. I, I don't want to see the uh, book writers suffer. I don't want to see the book sellers suffer. I don't want to see the book industry suffer. But, you know, there's going to be some eggs cracked as this omelet is made, you know, and uh, there's going to be some people hurt in all of this dissemination, that's for sure. I mean, we see technology disrupting every industry, and there's just no going back from that. And it is sad uh, in so many ways. So I'm so freaked out about AI, and, you know, they're going to take, it's going to take our jobs away in so many ways, but, you know, there's other advances and benefits to that as well. Well, you had so, the perfect punchline. You worked for one of the best technology magazines and it went out of business, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. It was, it, was, it was just great. You know, I thought it was great because it was geared toward millennials and, and culture. And it, you know, there was something I was going to say um, about what you just said, but uh, it skipped my mind. Good stuff to talk about, for sure. Did, did you immediately, when you came to recovery, think, uh, I should be writing about this, or did someone encourage you to get involved? No, I never thought about it. In fact, I didn't even really realize there was a market for it. What happened was I actually was writing about food, because I did spend time, a lot of time working in restaurant kitchens as a pastry chef, basically fell into it because as a writer, you know, trying to, <laughs> trying to earn a living is difficult. So I fell into that. I started writing about food in Los Angeles. I started getting more and more and more work where I was, I was able to stop um, cooking. And in the process, I was trying to find even more gigs, you know, to sustain my income. And I heard about Anna David, yeah. who I actually knew through Los Angeles Recovery. And, you know, she was like, oh, well, send me some samples of your writing, which I did. And Soon enough, I was writing a lot of articles for her, and then that led to the fix. So that was basically how that went. It happened, like, overnight, basically. Are you part of, like, a, a writer's community? Do you all hang out, you and Anna? And uh, I'm trying to think of some of the others I see all sort of in the same collective. Or do, do you live uh, sort of uh, locked in your room, staring at your screen type of life as a writer? <laughs> Uh, that's a great question. When after when Anna David was the editor in chief of After Party Magazine, we did we were able to kind of get together a little more often. She's doing a lot of other projects too, so I know she's she's mm -hmm. consumed her time is limited. We're all close by here in LA. I definitely can do, be better about making those connections and staying co in contact with people. And it's so funny because just this week I got a message from uh, Amanda Fletcher who's. He used to write for After Party. She's great, great writer. Mm -hmm. So I, 
I can say that, like, I do really well when I interact with people. It brightens me. It lifts my energy. But I, I naturally want to hole up. Like, I just want to stay in front of my computer, be introverted. I do deal with social anxiety. And at the same time, I also can be really extroverted. Like, I'm really excited to do this podcast. So mm-hmm. I just know that I've been, I've been going out more and interacting with writers, and I find it really inspiring and, and, and good. So I would like to stay in touch with people more. Our, uh, you know, uh, agnostic AA meeting is an eclectic group of, uh, uh, you know, professionals. Like, there's lawyers and doctors that come, and, and there's several writers we never talk about writing when we go for coffee after the meeting, right? <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny how how that goes, right? Because you're meeting in a in a sort of slightly different environment, and uh, I've taken some writing courses and classes and things like that, and I, and I, and for a little while you'd be part of a community, but then everyone sort of it ends, it blows up, everyone goes off doing their own thing, and and it. You do get kind of consumed with your own little uh, area that you're into. Uh, um, so w- tell us about this new book. You just mentioned that, and I am very curious. Well, it's it's a novel. Um, this is technically now the fourth manuscript I've written. I did do a thesis for grad school. None of those I thought were developed enough to, to send out to publishers. This one, I'm crossing my fingers. I'm, I'm on to something. It started as being young adult, but I definitely don't think it will be young adult. The critical question is, is it okay to coerce somebody out of suicide? So suicide is a very big theme, and I've struggled a lot with suicide, suicidal ideation in my, in my um in my past. So the protagonist is a 15-year-old girl who's a gamer, very introverted herself, and just has like a, a massive amount of teenage angst, which is kind of a trope, but I'm hoping if like I can execute this well enough that it doesn't seem tropey. So um, <laughs> she has a psychiatrist, like very clinical materialist father who's also Armenian and kind of shows up to church just to pay lip, lip service. I'm half Armenian, and basically, if, you, mm-hmm. if you're Armenian and you don't show up to church, it's like you're not an Armenian. And then her mother is more like Anglo from the desert, kind of new age, and it's sort of this play between psychiatry, religion, and even witchcraft, all these people trying to figure out what to do with her, how they can fix her, and, and in the end, it becomes a lot about control and coercion. And I find it really interesting that people will say, you know, oh, you're thinking of committing suicide, like how selfish you are or how, you know, and mm-hmm. but they don't stop and think like if it's a close family member or a friend, it's like, well, what about the person? You know, they're struggling too and you want to keep them there. So these characters will do anything to keep her mm-hmm. alive. Mm-hmm. And then it goes into this whole magical place very over the top and I and I still haven't quite worked out the ending but I'm getting there you're uh, letting this story take you where it goes or or do you already know how it'll end just there's a part in the middle you don't quite know how to get from A, B, C all the way to Z well I originally did have the ending and I had a lot of it mapped out in my head and even did an outline but I also know from experience that when you, once you start that writing process it's going to go where it's going to go and um, one of my one, an author I really admire Walter Mosley wrote um, a book on writing your novel and he's basically like there are two types of people there's the intuitive and then there's the like 
you know, person who outlines and plans everything, and, and mm-hmm. really, people are usually kind of a combination of both. But I realized that the creativity and the subconscious really gets unleashed when you just go. Like I have that map in my head, but now I've got over a hundred thousand words. It's just the first draft, so mm-hmm. it's messy, but it's gone in so many different directions, and I like a lot of those directions. So I'm going to have to go back cut a lot of it out and, you know, explore those different threads. That's kind of my process. So, yeah. you know, I think it's going to end in a different way than I originally conceived. Yeah, I, 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 I love the subject matter because, you know, the idea that suicide has to be discouraged is a social construct, one that I probably yeah. buy into also. But, you know, everything has a, a an end. And uh, there's also the dying with dignity side of things too that you know if that isn't a a choice for people what kind of freedom air quotes again are we living in like i told someone who was feeling quite blue that honestly your thoughts of suicide are rational thoughts like if you are in an uncomfortable position that is one of many different options you can have and having that come to your head isn't a sign of mental illness it is a possibility, right? And if you refuse to even uh, address it or acknowledge it, you know, it's way better to uh, entertain it and then sort of play that tape through and then ask yourself, well, what else do these circumstances mean? What other options are there than to just repress it? And I, I think, I don't think repressing those things is a good idea. And I don't think keeping them to yourselves is a good idea either. Wow, what a wonderful point. That's an excellent point. And I hadn't even been able to kind of, you know, string that together in my head. But yes, repressing. I mean, no matter who you talk to, I I really don't know anybody who has that perspective that you have and would would just step back and be a little calm Mm -hmm. and and say what you said to somebody. It's just immediately shut it down, no matter how atheistic you are or... You know, how much psychiatry, you know, mm-hmm. like how, if you're a part of the medical field, yeah, or religious. And it's, it's really a shame. I mean, because, like, give the power back to the person. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, give it back to them. Totally. Uh, yeah. In, in this case, like, it was just a, such a freedom for him to not be shamed for feeling like giving up. It just right. yeah. And right. he's still with us and, uh, you know, still trying to get you know, medication uh, sorted out perfectly and and still trying to deal with, uh, you know, family problems and everything else. But if people aren't as, can't feel as free to be candid about talking about that as any other life choice, uh, I, I think we do them a disservice by, you know, shutting it down. So, yeah, I'm glad you're writing about this, and I'm really, like, like the, the subject matter is cool. I, it sounds like you're doing it in third person. I, I suspect in the back of my mind you have some uh, autobiography that will uh, be playing out in the story, too. <laughs> yes, there is. There definitely are some, um, some threads of that going in, and yes, it is third person. Third person omniscient at the moment, which is sort of tricky to work with. That might change, mm-hmm. but yes, definitely third person. Uh, I, I've just 
been a songwriter for a longer period of time than I've written nonfiction. But uh, yeah, I get uh, really married to a song and then I really like to change the tense and see how that changes the song. And people are hilarious. Uh, that if I want to write something that's particularly personal, I'll write it in third person and no one will even guess it's autobiographical. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and anything right, right. I write with the I voice, they go, oh yeah, that is so you, Joe. But the character, you know, is usually uh, a collage of a bunch of people I admire or intrigue me or whatever else, right? Right, which is great. I, it's so fun to be able to, like, make composites out of people you know. It's, it's great to do that. <laughs> it is. And so, do you have any sort of sense of uh, when this will be ready for general consumption? And are you going to be giving snippets out for interested parties or sort of keeping it behind the curtain until uh, launch time? Well, the goal was to get it done in a year, which is extremely ambitious and maybe insane. Um, I'm trying to get it completed by the end of the year. I'm in kind of a, a fortunate position right now where I don't have to, I'm not working full time. Uh, and so I'm trying to capitalize on that. It's a long story why that's happening. Well, basically my boyfriend is being amazing and lovely and wants, <laughs> wants me to focus on this. Um, but you know, that's, that's not going to be for forever. But if it's not at the end of this year, it will be soon after. I really have to push myself. Um, I've wanted to do this for so long, and it's just hard for me to find the energy and the time to focus, but now is the time. So, As cheesy as it sounds, for anyone listening who's thinking of, you know, writing fiction or nonfiction, you know, what are the best uh, lessons you've learned along the way? I would say humility is the number one thing. It's just on my mind lately. Like every day I start, and I just, that's a, a big intention is to have humility. Uh, kill your darlings, you know, chop it up. You think you're married to some piece of sentence of beautiful prose, doesn't matter. Like, like I know I'm gonna have to cut the beginning of the story. Mm -hmm. Clarity is very important. That's something that was really stressed um, when I was in grad school. And a lot of times we just don't have a clue as to how our stuff is not coming across. It's clear, it's confusing, so that's very, very important. Oh, it's very important to write a shitty first draft, if not a shitty, excuse my language, but <laughs> second and third, which a lot of people talk about, Walter Mosley and Lamont talk about. It. It's so important. That way you can get stuff down, because if you try to write some brilliant, you know, paragraph, out, 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 you know, when you're first starting, it's, you're going to be paralyzed. So I think that, that letting that subconscious go and just know it's crap and you're going to cut all of it and you're going to start over again. That's how I've been able to, to work. Uh, well, that's encouraging to hear because uh, I, I think what people don't understand is uh, uh, there are no great writers, but there are a few great rewriters in the world. <laughs> mm, that's a great point. Very uh, good point. Either... Uh, uh, a uh, writing professor who said uh, he had a, a drawer in the bottom left of his uh, a desk that was his cool-off drawer. After he'd composed something and he thought it was brilliant, it had to stay in there for a couple days to cool off before he looked at it again. And, and he could see that it's he started in the middle and it needs to be developed. or He, he, could, he could find the faults with it a couple days later. And uh, one of the promises he asked his... Uh, 
wife to make to him is when he dies that it gets burned, everything in there gets burned, that there is no the unpublished works of, you know, so-and-so. <laughs> right. That's a really good um, practice. I think that's great, for sure. Yeah, we don't always have that kind of time with uh, deadlines and all that sort of thing. But do you have anything sort of in the hopper as far as sort of the addiction recovery thing? Anything you you would like to write about or you're already working on? Well, I just uh, submitted a story on the promise of virtual reality to treat addiction. And I've spoken with a couple experts on that. That's going to be published for the fix. I'm very, very intrigued at how... VR is starting to um, be used to treat mental health uh, issues and then also addiction. And I think in general, um, anywhere there's an intersection between technology and addiction treatment or mental health treatment, that's definitely something I'm interested in exploring. Um, I think that it's high time for many more developments in, in that area. It's, you know, mental health too, it's not an empirical science in terms of how we diagnose diagnose these conditions. I don't know why we're not using brain scans or, mm-hmm. or other, you know, technological advancements. And, I, and I've read about a lot more. I'm just like very passionate about this, but mm-hmm. that's definitely what I want to, you know, push forward toward, toward writing about. Do you think, like, in sort of a future look, that it's possible to create some sort of algorithm that uh, can help a person identify their own addiction and choose their best course for recovery? It really could be possible if enough data was gathered, mm-hmm. as they call it, big data, and then it was analyzed. I think that's, that's absolutely possible. I really do. Yeah, I'm not afraid of it. Uh, you know, like I'm trying to think of what professions will the human mind still have an advantage of in 50 years, and I don't know. I mean, my day job is financial planning, and, and I can see that coming in the next 10 years where a computer can give you better advice that suits you, the investor, and your own personality and your own quirks uh, better than uh, my uh, heap of research. Like, the great thing about addiction treatment is so many more are getting away than are being helped that there there might, there is a big opportunity here to help more people, I think. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, technology is disrupting and changing and revolutionizing every other form of medical treatment. You know, there's no reason why this can't be, like, at the forefront of addiction treatment. I think that's extremely important. And it's so sad, though, that so many drugs are going to become more obsolete. I mean, I've read about the singularity and, mm-hmm. you know, um, and it's going to come in many ways. But as you're saying, you kind of try to envision how you can make yourself relevant, really, when, when AI starts taking away those jobs. I think it's possible, especially as a writer. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, I'm, I'm trying to imagine, that, you know, uh, computer-generated poetry, what that would look like. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, okay, and just uh, to uh, wrap up, uh, Tracy, uh, how do people uh, get in touch with you? Do you have your own, like, website or... Uh, What's your favorite social media outlet? Well, people are totally free to email me through my website. It's www.tracyshabala.com, first and last name, 
And you can also find me on Facebook, um, although links are that to those are on my uh, website. Okay. So they can, they can find those links. Great. So right from the website, uh, anything that's uh, relevant now or in the future will be there. I know we've been close to chatting several times in the last few years, and I'm uh, so glad we had an opportunity to uh, actually talk through the wonders of modern technology. Maybe not nose to nose, but heart and mind to heart and mind. <laughs> I know. This has been wonderful. Great, great discussion, too. We covered a lot, which I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. It, Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. Oh, it, it, it is uh, our honor all the way, Tracy. And I just I don't know if we discussed this before we were uh, recording, but uh, uh, we'll cut it off here because you're it, it's I understand it's your boyfriend's uh, birthday today. So there are other important <laughs> things for you to be getting to. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much. No, but this has been a pleasure. It really has. Okay, great. Well, uh, um, it, it's not goodbye. It's a see you soon. And uh, thanks uh, for being so generous uh, with your uh, contributions to Rebellion Dogs Radio, Tracy. You're welcome. You're welcome. Have, have a wonderful day. Okay. We'll be in touch. You bet. Okay, bye now. Okay, bye. Hey, this is Anna David with After Party, and you are listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio. Thanks, Anna David. Uh, That was from when I was in Los Angeles. I was her guest on her 100th episode of After Party podcast. Uh, She's gone on to do such podcasts as Recovery Girl and Light Hustler. They're all archived. They're worth listening to. And you'll notice I didn't talk too much about uh, Tracy's addiction and recovery. That's already documented. Go to After Party Podcast, look for episode number 79, and uh, Tracy and Anna and Danielle sort of talk about their collective stories. And so you can get a lot of that. If you want the dirt on Tracy Shabella, Listen to episode 79, I think it's 79, of uh, After Party Podcast. Another great podcast I just listened to, you know I listen to a lot of them, the Unruffled Podcast, episode 52, Jamie Amos was the guest. It's hosted by uh, Tammy Salas, and if you were in Austin at the Living Cyber panel, wow, I mean she was a great speaker. She was there with Chris and me and uh, others. Anyway, she co-hosts the Unruffled podcast with uh, Sandra Primo. The show generally relates to creativity and uh, sobriety. Uh, So they're talking to New Orleans uh, writer uh, Jamie Amos, and she talks about her local creative community, uh, The Neutral Ground. You'll find out about that if you check out that podcast. And the New Orleans recovery community, if you're kind of curious about that. The study that Tracy was talking about, uh, you can get a link to that from rebelliondogspublishing.com. We'll have uh, links to Tracy, to her article at The Fix, and anything else we talk about here. The 
study generally supports the idea that the 12-step modality doesn't work because of the spiritual component. That just seems to be the narrative or the language that it's uh, spoken in. If you're part of a secular AA group, if you're a, a member of an agnostics, atheist AA group, maybe more can be done to eliminate this best-kept secret in AA that there are meetings without prayer, without having to accept anyone else's beliefs, without having to deny your own. Most communities now have a secular AA meeting that parole officers, treatment counselors, uh, detoxes can send people to if they're so inclined. Of course, if there's a smart recovery, life ring, women for sobriety meeting there, they should go there too. <laughs> it's not a competition. We're all part of a recovery community. But AA is ubiquitous, and uh, there's a very good chance there's AA in their town. And what some of the people, some of the professionals might not know is that secular AA is available to them too. So if all of our 400 and some odd secular meetings just spoke to one treatment center or sent out a letter to one parole officer inviting them to attend their meeting or letting them know that the meeting was available, whatever your group conscious is on that, uh, I think that's a, a great idea. No God, no problem. Regrets, we have a few. In fact, four of them coming up. That's regrets, spelled R-E-G-R-E-T-T-E-S. The way the cool kids spell it. That's a shout-out to Anna David. <laughs> uh, I saw this band first uh, when I was wearing my uh, IndyCan radio hat. I was at North by Northeast, 2017. And April 2018, they're playing Coachella in California. They're off to do a UK tour in May. Then they are doing a poly tourist giving of themselves. Their sort of pop punk music will be played in the United States and UK through most of this upcoming summer. So if you like this tune coming up and you want to see them, why don't you go do that? Visit rebelliondogspublishing.com for links to Tracy Shabella, The Regrets, the International Conference of Secular AA, and more. This is a song by The Regrets. Thanks for being part of Rebellion Dogs Radio. You're talking to me like a child. Hey, I got news, I'm not a little girl. And no, I won't give you a little twirl. You're talking to me like I'm sad. Hey, I got news, I'm not doing too bad. Even though sometimes I might get real mad. You're talking to me like a child My words are growing stronger And my legs keep getting longer I'm like nobody else So you can just go fuck yourself I do a lot of stupid stuff But don't act like you're so tough Talking to me like I'm dumb Well, I've got news, I've got a lot to say There's nothing you can do to take that away You're talking to me like I'm hurt Well, at least I'm not six feet in the dirt And I'll still kick 
kick your ass even in my skirt You're talking to me like a child Well, I'm not a helpless baby Not waiting on you to come save me I'm like nobody else So you can just go fuck yourself I do a lot of stupid stuff But don't You're talking to me like a bitch Do you ever hear the way that you speak? Don't have to be so mean just cause you're weak I'm like nobody else So you can just go fuck yourself I do a lot of stupid stuff But don't act like you're so tough Save you any